This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And the other day I was flying and I bumped across an airline magazine article about intentionally planning to eat with people you don't know. That's right, I just said it. It talked about a company called Eat With, where you can sign up to attend a stranger's dinner party that they host in their home, and every guest is a complete stranger. But not so once the dinner is over, and that's the beauty of this. And we're fortunate to be joined by one of the first employees of Eat With, Noam Klinger. When she joined the company in 2014, it was a startup in Tel Aviv, Israel, with only six or seven employees, and she was the community manager for one of their two markets. Now they're in, get this, 200 cities across the globe and coming to a market near you, and she's now the global chief operating officer. And Noam, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Before we get into Eat With, let's talk about you. Tell us about your childhood in Israel. We always like to talk to people involved in business life. Your childhood in Israel and what it was like and how did it shape you? So I grew up in Israel in a small neighborhood just outside of Tel Aviv, a place where everyone knew everyone. And I grew up with people who are still my best friends till this very day. I even married my neighbor who was my best friend as a child. So a wonderful childhood. Um, as a family, we traveled extensively, and my parents always pushed me to see the world, to immerse myself in other cultures, and to follow my passions and dreams. There's, um, you know, this talk about the Jewish mother who will keep her children close to her. So my mother was the opposite. She kept saying, go travel, meet people, try new things, and that's what I did. So when I graduated... When I got out of the Army, I traveled in South America for a year. I lived in New York. I lived in Barcelona and London. I traveled in India for a very long time. And I think this played a a great role in shaping the person I am today. Moreover, food has always been a great, great passion of mine and a big part of my family culture. We used to cook together. We used to host a lot of people. Every Friday dinner, we would host 20 to 30 people, an open table, and me and my father will create a new menu each week and produce it and host, and the door will be open, and people would join the table, and we keep this tradition till this very day. Now I'm trying to do it myself in San Francisco. <laughs> and it, I, would, I would guess that in some ways, Noam, the, uh, the, the, the benefits you got from this and the joy you took in it uh, was instrumental in you starting and working with, or just at least working with this essential startup. Uh, it was that 20 or 30 so folks every Friday in that, in that family of yours, and not many other families were doing this kind of thing. Exactly, exactly. I was very fortunate to meet Eat West because I felt, in a way, this is a combination of everything I love. And it was an opportunity to bring this passion of mine and my family tradition and culture to my day-to-day work. So I kind of felt like I was raised to this, to this idea of meeting people around the dinner table. And Noam, you, you served in the IDF uh, as an intelligence officer. And folks, for those of you who don't know, in Israel, you're joining the army, male, female. You're going in in some capacity and you're serving. And you said this in our pre-interview, the Army is a big part of who I am now, my professional skills on how to deal with people and manage big projects. I was only 18 when I went in, and it's an organization of young people, so you have lots of responsibility in your hands. So two things I think are central. Your mom, rather than keep you close, 
pushed you away and out, but not pushed you away from her. She just wanted you to learn. And by goodness, she probably got you to be closer to her by doing that. So every parent listening, take note. There are different ways to do these things. But then this military experience, you told us this had a central part of your uh, sort of your, your, your character being formed early. Mm-hmm. I, I completely agree. So I think the Army, um, you think of a military service as going into the field, but for me, serving in the intelligence force was a training for the startup culture. I was working in a very innovative uh, unit with uh, 200 soldiers by my side. Later, I was the commander of 200 people. So in the age of 20, I had 200 people who reported to me. This is a huge experience for a 20 years old. Well, you can't like like an, you cannot act like an idiot when 200 people are reporting to you. Exactly, and you get a lot of responsibility. You tr- you train yourself in in skills that are later very very relevant to to acting in the real world. And let's talk about the culture in Tel Aviv because per capita. Next to Silicon Valley, there are more startups there than just about anywhere else in the world. And I don't know that most Americans think of Israel and uh, this city called Tel Aviv as startup nation, but it is. Talk about what's going on there in the water, what's going in there in the culture. Why is Tel Aviv Tel Aviv? So first, I just want to say that after living abroad, I still feel Tel Aviv is one of the best cities to live in. It's... uh, combination of diverse and creative people, old and new. It has the beach. It has an amazing food scene, as well as art and music. And that's along with the startup scene, was really, really strong, uh, with a mature ecosystem of accelerators, investors, uh, VCs, angels, mentors, um, you can hardly go to lunch without bumping into a fellow funder, developer, or investor. Everyone knows everyone, and there are lots of collaborations and general sense of a community driving everyone forward. Personality-wise, I think the Army, again, and the military service has a lot to do with that. So it's, look at it. I, I kind of like to look at it as a startup factory. So a lot of 21 years old graduating from the Army and are already trained in the most innovative units of the Army, ready to join a startup um, with a lot of um, actual experience, as well as a sense, um, a basic sense that life isn't granted and you never know what's going to happen in Tel Aviv in a year from now, which makes people, um, people tend to take more risks, to be very passionate, to be very aggressive, and not to be afraid of failures. They are willing to, to play it all. And I think this is what creates this sense of excitement and innovation and creation. And Noam, hold that thought. We'll be back to learn more about your dinner party startup, Eat With, after this short break.
is Our American Stories, and we're talking with Noam Klinger of Eat With, an Israeli startup that's the Uber or Airbnb of dinner parties. We were just talking about how the culture of Tel Aviv and Israel is so amazingly supportive of startups and risk-taking, the incredible talent pool, the vibrant energy, and the sober realization that Israelis can never quite take tomorrow for granted. So, Noam, please tell us more about your particular startup, Eat With. How does it work? Okay, so Eat With is a marketplace that brings people together through food and homes around the world. This is the vision, to bring people together. We have about a 1,000 hosts, home cooks, and professional chefs in 200 cities globally who host tourists and locals for dinner parties, cooking workshops, and special culinary experiences. You can do it as a tourist when you travel abroad, or you can do it as a local in your own city. It doesn't matter. You can join a table, like you said, with people you don't know and experience something unique together, or you can book the whole table and get a special, private, culinary experience in the house of the chef. Um, I like to look at it. Think about you going to Barcelona, for example. Um, You can dine with all the tourists in the Rambla and eat paella straight from the microwave, or you can go and meet Alberto and Ella, our host, in their cool apartment, cook with them a paella from scratch and meet their friends, talk about the Catalan culture. I think people nowadays are looking for more intimate, authentic experiences, um, and this is exactly what Eatless provides. Um, I think it's, a, it's a remarkable thing, that authenticity you're talking about, because I think you're dead right. I think more than ever, when it, when it, whether it comes to content or whether it comes to, and I believe you're in the content business, a meal is theater, a meal is, uh, is content, the food is content, the conversation is content, and it's an experience like going to the theater or anything else, and maybe better, um, because these are real-life relationships. If you go to the theater, you leave, the only relationship you have is with the person you went to the theater with. You've learned a little more, you've been moved, but that's it. Um, you don't get to know the people in the audience when you're going to a play. I think that's what's distinctive here. Talk about how you find the people who host, because I would assume that you have to do a lot of quality control on that space. This isn't like Uber. Um, you've got to make sure that your brand is kept, kept solid and strong and protected by vetting properly the people who are going to be hosting these parties. A couple of bad experiences, and your brand name suffers. How do you do that? So you're right. We take the vetting process very, very seriously. Um, we have so some of our hosts. We actually found them ourselves. Um, the other way to go is to apply online and to go through our application process. Then we handpicked the best hosts in every city, the ones who will not only feed you with amazing food but will also give you the full experience. So we're looking for this unique combination that is not only you know how to cook an amazing meal, which is fresh and unique, um, but also the personality of the host. And this is the most important thing for us. So who's the person who will open the door? He has to be a people person, someone who loves hosting, who knows how to control the dinner and to make conversation flowing and to make you feel at home as well as the space, so it has to be clean, it has to have a good vibe in it. Um, So it's a very unique combination. We go through a very um, distinctive application process, and in the very end, we do a demo dinner 
where the chef actually opens his house for for guests and our and our guests um, the the people who are attended multiple eat with dinners will go to those dem- demo dinners along with our staff to vet the actual place and the host so every host on the platform is vetted uh, we take only 4% 4 to 5% of our applications and they they will make it to the platform in the end of the day Now, uh, you know, what's interesting is I thought food trucks were a fascinating thing that happened, but that's not an experience. It's just an interesting way for people who can't afford to open a storefront to make a living and then maybe open a storefront or maybe not just have a bunch of food trucks. I think this is fascinating because it gives the person who owns an apartment, just like an Airbnb, an opportunity for revenue. Plus, it gives the person who might want to do something other than eat in a restaurant the opportunity to have a real-life experience with someone from Barcelona, even someone here in Little Oxford, Mississippi, a city, by the way, that lots of tourists from around the world come to because it's the home of William Faulkner. It's the home of the blues. Elvis's Gracie Mansion is not far away. And people from all over the world come to this little pocket of the country. And my goodness, you can go to one of our restaurants or you could come to my house. My wife could have, well, she loves to have a big open area. We have movie nights on Sunday nights. And we invite random people together on Sunday nights. We've been doing this now for seven months. It's now the joy of our life. We're going to do it forever. Long dinner and then a, a, a movie. And that's every Sunday now. It's getting, we're, we're sort of catching wind in Oxford. Now, we're not doing it for money. I think my point is that this might be an interesting way for someone who can cook to not only host and, and do some interesting things for folks, but people are paying for this experience, correct? Amazing. You just got in. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> and so, so talk about how, how, how this can be a, a neat experience. I mean, obviously, you've got to audition. You've got to have the talent. You've got to be able to cook. And you've got to be able to host, which is equally important, I would think, in this matter. Great meal, but you don't know how to keep the conversation going. Still not a great experience. So this, is a, this takes a real talent. But my goodness, what if you could do this two or three nights a week and you're a stay-at-home mom and you wanted to really make some extra money and also really have a tremendous experience but not risk a lot of capital? Um, this becomes a really interesting earning opportunity uh, for someone who can start to get good ratings from the people who are going and enjoying this, this uh, offering. Talk about exactly. that. Exactly. We have, uh, I would say, 25% of our hosts are using EatWest as their main source of income. The other 75% will do it as a hobby or as a supplement income uh, on the side. But for people who are doing it full-time, this is a huge opportunity. Think of like opening a restaurant nowadays. This is a huge risk, a huge financial risk as well as your time and efforts. And doing an EatWest doesn't cost anything as a start, and you don't have to risk anything. So for those people, this is an amazing experience to test their recipes, to test their audience, to see how the reactions for their food. And we have hosts who are doing now about $20,000 a month. Wow. So you, you can really make an income out of it. Now, do you think that there's going to be a time in the same way that Uber got challenged by local taxi cabs, the same way that food trucks were starting to get challenged by local restaurants going to the city council? Um, do you think there's going to be a time soon, or has it already happened, where some cities through the restaurant associations are going to go, hey, that $20,000 a month was mine. You're not regulated. You're not being taxed. Um, are you worried that some of the things that have happened to Uber and some of the things that have happened to Airbnb are about to happen to you, or are they happening? So first, I'd, I would just say that we're working with restaurants in a very close relationship. So we had 
uh, some famous ho- uh, chefs from famous restaurants who decided to do an Eat With event just to have a more personal connection to their audience and to invite people to their own kitchens. So I don't see it as a comp- direct competition, but as a collaboration that can come along. Obviously, the regulation is always a good question. Um, we're opening, an, opening a new category. It's a new, it's a new economy, the sharing economy, and it raises a lot of questions that hadn't been answered so far. But we will get to them when the time comes, and, and I'm sure we can find solution with each um, city council and state as it comes. And I'm sure you're right, because in the end, and this is what I found, you know, the other day I'm sitting in my little town of Oxford, Mississippi, a big college town, and the kids are talking about how the town was trying to block Uber, and they had successfully vetoed and worked over the city council and said, hey, come on, and now there's Uber in our in our little town, and in the end, the citizens are going to make the decision, and the politicians just have to be very careful, because people want choices, and that choice is not only of where to eat, but also choices of how to make a living. And this sharing economy is new, and I think in the end it's going to work through all of its growing pains. This is Our American Stories, and after these messages, we'll continue our conversation with Noam Klinger of Eat With, an Israeli startup looking to change how we eat when traveling, or around even our own hometowns. More after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we've been talking to Noam Klinger of Eat With about how her company brings together total strangers for beautiful gatherings in the homes of thoroughly vetted hosts. Well, they may start as strangers, but I bet they don't stay that way for long. Noam, will you please tell us some of your favorite stories about folks who met at Eat With dinners? Of course. So I have a lot of them. You know, three years of people around tables produces a lot of content. Uh, I was just invited to a wedding that will happen next summer of one of our top hosts in Barcelona who matches future wife in an eat with dinner. So she was a guest and he was a host, um, which is a beautiful story. Uh, this is not the first wedding we had at Eat With. We had 
two hosts who got married. They met through Eat What Meetup, and they got married. And we have a lot of love stories coming our ways from people who met around the table as guests. And we have uh, guests who named their newborn after the name of their host because they had such an amazing experience. So they sent us a letter with the photo of their kid and the story. And one of my favorite hosts in uh, Rome, she was a real estate agent in, uh, in our past, and now she's a full-time Eat West host. And she, every time she has guests over, she will either go with them afterwards to a party. She will hang out with them the day after. And she really creates those meaningful experiences. In, in last uh, April, she visited Israel and stayed in guests she hosted before in her house. She stayed now in their home uh, on our travel to Israel. And we had the opposite way when a guest, a host from Israel, who hosted a lot of Americans along the years, decided to do a road trip along the um, the West Coast, staying at her former guest houses. So they invited her to stay at their place after they dined with her in Israel. That's terrific. And Noam, we've noticed that you're on the board for the Israeli branch of Nifty the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship. We absolutely love this group, and we had on our show the two best friends who won Nifty's 2013 National Youth Entrepreneurship Challenge with their business built around socks that securely hold shin guards for soccer players. You can hear that interview on our website, by the way, at ouramericannetwork.org. Now, um, we talked earlier about the superb culture for entrepreneurship and startups in Tel Aviv, and throughout Israel. So it's natural that Nifty would want to work with Israelis. Please tell us more about Nifty, what the group is doing in Israel, and how you participate. Share a favorite memory or two. Okay, so you touched one of my favorite projects I'm involved in, and I'm happy you asked about it. Um, so as you said, Nifty, the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, originally it's an American program, but it was brought to Israel, I think, in 2006, I hope I'm not wrong, um, and their mission is to provide educational programs that inspire young people from low-income or deprived communities to stay in school, to recognize business opportunity, and to plan for a successful future. Basically, take the tools that we have in our day-to-day day-to-day professional world and to give it to them in the early when they're young um, it's not about turning them into entrepreneurs or make or building businesses it's about giving them the basic tools and networking skills asking questions innovation working in teams and all those skills the soft skills that actually help them to be better people in the end of the day and to open up doors for them in their future. I'm in love with this project. I've seen amazing cases of people who got to really change their life through this program. I just, um, I think a week ago, the global competition of the NIFTI teams from all around the world met in New York, and I just got the photos of the Israeli team of four boys who took the flight the first time of their life. They mm. bought a suit 
for the first time of their life. And they had to pitch in English for 10 minutes about their new startup idea. And for them, that was a life-changing experience. Oh, indeed. You know, what I find is, and I've worked with uh, some inner-city kids here in, in the United States on this, and they're always thinking, how can I do a startup? I have no money. And I said, look, you do a startup because you might have a great idea. And someone with money might give you not only the money, they might give you the training. There's a thing called social capital. And very often what we're looking for is your idea and you, not your money. We're looking for you. And I think that there's such a level of ignorance about how companies get started, who starts them, and how they get started. And I'm so glad that you're working with Nifty. It's it's such a tremendous organization. If we can educate young people about this, we might just bump into a few more risk takers who were young. Look, I'm Lebanese. You're Israeli. It's in our blood. I mean, in, in, my, in my family, if you don't go out and start a company or do something, you're disinherited. Um, we have to do it. So it, it's just uh, it's a cultural thing. Um, how often do you personally attend Eat With Dinners, Noam? Uh, just you yourself. Do you spend time in the field just dropping in on Eat With Dinners? So it touched the fun part of my job. I try to do it as much as I can. I'm a strong believer in keeping like con- straight connection with the host and the guests. So I try in I try to go as much as I can. There were times when it was three to four times a week. Now I have a two years old back home. So I do it less, but I if I'm not at dinners, I would talk with hosts. I would talk with guests daily. I felt this is a big part of making this product and service better and understanding how to move forward. Yep. That's a great idea. You know, Bernie Marcus, one of my heroes, we did an hour on him. He's the founder of Home Depot. He said that half his life he spent just visiting the stores and making sure the connection between the customer and the people on the, on the front lines were tight and then giving them the resources to solve their problems. But he was always concerned with the interface of the customer and the product and the rest of it be damned and make sure that management is responsible for that, that position. And so I'm sure that's uh, got to be a preoccupation with you. Those dinners start to go down in quality and you've got yourself a problem, don't you? Mm-hmm. And let's talk about one last thing before we leave. You decided to leave Tel Aviv uh, and bring your corporate team over to San Francisco. Uh, how, how has that experience been different? And talk about what life's like in the Bay Area uh, since you've moved. So I just moved three weeks ago. And I must say, it's an amazing experience so far. Um, I'm still investigating the city and trying myself to meet as many people as I can and to experience food and culture. And there's a lot to experience here, that's for sure. Well, you're at the perfect company to do that, by the way. <laughs> I mean, just start doing Eat With Dinners and you'll meet lots of people in the city. Exactly. And exactly. Uh, it, Noam, this is a wonderful story. Eat With is the company. And my goodness, what a great idea to bring people together. We're talking to Noam Klinger. And this is just a part of our regular Entrepreneur Series. And thank you so much for joining us, Noam. This is Our American Stories, and we just love stories like that. Culture of entrepreneurship, leadership, great food, world-class hospitality. What more can you ask for? We've been talking to Noam Klinger of Eat With about her Israeli-born startup that connects folks who don't know each other to have great dinner parties. It's like Uber. It's like Airbnb. But for dinner, conversation, and making friends in new places. And by the way, make you and your family a little bit extra money on the side. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and we tell all kinds of stories here about love, about loss, about business, about risk-taking, history. And this one comes from a friend of Faith's, and she shares an important subject that is often avoided. Here is Mimi's story. It's always odd to talk about yourself. With you, you're sort of forced to take this perspective that seems arrogant if you say good things and self-deprecating and weak if you don't. And no one likes to feel weak or out of control. Growing up, I was raised by a mother who told me never to show weakness, that other people always deserve your best and nothing less. This is an excellent strategy for planning a cocktail party. And my mom is the queen of parties, ask anyone. (laughs) But not as effective for managing human emotions. Appearances were always kept up in my house, and I really tried to be this perfect, amazing, wonderful, in-control human. And in my house, that equated to being thin. I was a ballet dancer since I could walk. I pursued the career professionally and had many successes until I quit at age 19. I quit because the director of a very famous ballet company told me that although my technique was flawless, my artistry incomparable to anyone else my age, and I had a long, successful career ahead of me, I needed to lose at least 15 to 20 pounds. And my breasts were too large and distracting, I should consider getting them surgically reduced. And at that moment, 15 years of 40 hours a week or more of dancing, conditioning, crying, starving myself, throwing up until I had to get a root canal because of tooth decay, were just thrown away. He only saw me as my weight and nothing else. And keep in mind that I was very, very thin at the time actually about 40 pounds thinner than I am right now, and right now I'm at a very healthy weight. Something inside me just broke. I felt like I was fighting to fit into the mold of the prima ballerina, ace bandaging my breasts down in tutus a la Hilary Swank and about a boy, starving, self-harming, suicide attempts, depression... Everything just came crashing down at that moment, and it was all for nothing. I quit right then and never, ever stepped into a ballet studio again. And I haven't, to this day, at 24 years old. My mom stayed in bed for a month. I remember counting calories at 10 years old, tying a bathrobe around my waist so tight that I couldn't breathe to try to make my waist smaller pushing my chest against the ground to try and flatten (laughs) my boobs after I suddenly got double D's during puberty, (laughs) and turning the bathtub on full blast to cover up the sounds of my vomiting at my dinner. I guess you could say that I was anorexic and bulimic starting at age 13 until about 20. I never sought official treatment other than the occasional therapy, and my extreme dieting was condoned by my mother as a job hazard and necessary to get where I needed to go. I never knew that I had an eating disorder until I was about 18. I thought that starving myself, looking at pictures of emaciated models for hours and hating myself was just a part of my life and career choice. 
And just let me say really quickly, uh, I love my mother. (laughs) She is an angel. I say these things and share these memories knowing that what she did, she always did out of love and out of her own warped understanding from her own upbringing. She is a strong, creative woman whom I love very dearly. But I have learned that it is imperative to acknowledge the past if we want to move on. I have always been overtaken by the feeling that I was not good enough, something that I still struggle with today, as many of us do. I have never had a time in my life where I have not been trying to lose weight, sometimes more successfully than others. My lowest weight was horribly low, so unhealthy and terrible. I had three broken bones and fractures because when you don't eat, your bones break. And even then, at my very lowest weight, I remember telling my mom that I thought I looked pregnant in my new white leotard. I wish I could go back and tell my 16-year-old self that this isn't worth it. The lie being sold to you that you will only be happy if you're thin is false. Stop doing this to yourself. But I can't. I can only learn from what happened to me. I am often regretful about abandoning my career as a ballet dancer. I could have easily went with another company. I based my decision on one horrible old-fashioned man. I could have gone with a more contemporary form of dance where they are more accepting of more diverse body types or commercial dancing. But you really do need to let go or be dragged. If you cannot change it, you should not stress over it. My eating disorder was inextricably linked to ballet and my mom. So I thought that once I quit ballet and was spending less time with my mom, I would be okay. And I was very wrong. I never figured out why I hurt myself, why I did what I did. I never acknowledged how sick I was or how distorted my body image was. So... All of those issues still followed me as I tried to live a normal life. My eating disorder and my depression were my comforts. They were familiar. It was all that I knew. I never knew how to eat normally, how to not count my calories and fat grams, how to enjoy food, why I shouldn't be binging and purging every other day, how to not feel guilty about having a cookie, how to see exercise as something beautiful and therapeutic and not as punishment. And it has taken me up until this past year to find some answers. I must say that the body positive movement has impacted me greatly. Let me end with who I am today. I am a 24-year-old woman who believes that all shapes and sizes are beautiful. There is so much more than what is on the surface. We were not put on this earth to try to fit into a size zero. We were put here to be ourselves and to bring our own unique talents and light to this world. There is an enormous power in positivity. I cannot say this enough. Your thoughts become reality. I know it sounds cheesy, but it is true. And you can thank my boyfriend for that advice. I laughed at him too. As far as recovery goes, I am not a doctor or a therapist. I can only say what I think and what I've experienced. But you have to decide to get better. 
You have to decide to let go of those comfortable, harmful behaviors. And you need help. You can try to do it alone, but from my experience, you will relapse. Professional help is essential, but building healthy relationships is so important. You always want to isolate yourself with an eating disorder and with other mental illnesses. Those people who care for you will help you stay on track. They will make you feel like a valid human and remind you that you are important and needed in this world. Surround yourself with positivity and work every day to let go of your old thoughts and actions. You will fail. I did. More times than I can count and I'm still failing today. And it's okay to have days when all you do is go to the bathroom and maybe get a snack. It's okay to curl up in your blankets and just hide for a while. It's okay. It's okay to feel what you feel. Just try not to stay there. Also, food is amazing. (laughs) It's so much fun. Such a bonding experience when you're with others. And you'll learn to love it again. You will learn to go clothes shopping without an emotional breakdown. It will take a couple tries, trust me. It's, it's taken me so long and sometimes I still have a rough time. But you will learn that there is nothing wrong with you. It's the clothes. It's a piece of fabric. Don't let it dictate how you feel about yourself. Beauty is arbitrary. It's societally constructed. And you get to define it for yourself. And if anyone else tries to, punch them. Okay, fine, don't punch them. Educate them. Educate them to question these traditions. Who said women, or men for that matter, have to look a certain way? Who made up these rules? You can, and you will let go of whatever is holding you back. It can be an eating disorder, addiction, bad habits, etc. But make no mistake... I do not believe I will be ever completely rid of my eating disorder. It will always be there, probably until I die, because it became a part of me and therefore is who I was. But it's not who I am anymore. You can acknowledge the past without living in it. Take care of yourself and love yourself because you are perfect the way God made you. And thank you for that, Mimi. It took a lot of courage to tell that story. I have a 12-year-old girl, and she's already looking at that mirror and wondering about her body image. Is she thin enough? Is she pretty enough? And this is just an occupational hazard of being a woman. It's also starting to affect young boys as we see more and more photoshops of men with their abs all over the place, and they're thin and they're losing weight. And it's just it's a disturbing trend in America, this self-starvation, and particularly the world of ballet which I got to experience a bit when my sister was young. And it is a brutal world. It looks beautiful on the outside. But the image comportment and having to look like that thin, thin swan is really, really tough. Mimi's story, here on Our American Stories. Our American Story. Now it's time for our This Day in Music History segment, as always, brought to us 
by Jesse. Born on this day in music history, 1918, U.S. jazz singer Ella Fitzgerald. She appeared in movies and as a guest on popular television shows in the second half of the 20th century. Her musical collaborations with Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington were some of her most notable acts outside of her solo career. After her passing in June of 1996, Fitzgerald's influence lived on through her 14 Grammy Awards, National Medal of Arts, Presidential Medal of Freedom, and tributes in the form of stamps, music festivals, and other namesakes. Also born on this day in history, this time in 1923, is U.S. blues guitarist Albert King. He was an American blues guitarist and singer whose playing influenced many other blues guitarists. One of the three kings of blues guitar, along with B.B. King and Freddie King, he's perhaps best known for his 1967 single, Born Under a Bad Sign. Albert King stood taller than average at 6 foot 7 inches, weighing in at 250 pounds. He was known as the Velvet Bulldozer because of his smooth singing and very large size. In May of 2013, Albert King was posthumously inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And this day in music history, 1960, Elvis Presley started a four-week run at number one on the U.S. singles chart with Stuck on You. You can shake an apple off an apple tree. Shake a shake a sugar, but you'll never shake me. No His first single after his two-year stint in the U.S. Army. I'm gonna stick like glue. Stick because I'm stuck on you. It became his first number one single of the 1960s and his 13th overall. The song knocked Percy Faith's theme from a summer place from the top spot, ending its nine-week run at number one on the chart. I'm gonna stick like glue Stick because I'm stuck on you This day in music history, 1970. The Jackson 5 started a two-week run at number one on the U.S. singles chart with ABC. It was the group's second U.S. number one and a number eight hit in the U.K., First aired on American Bandstand, Jackson 5's ABC knocked the Beatles' Let It Be off the top of the Billboard Hot 100 in 1970. And in 1987, U2 started a five-week run at number one on the U.S. album chart with their fifth studio album called Joshua Tree. Inspired by American tour experiences, literature, and politics, the album topped the charts in over 20 countries and is one of the world's all-time best-selling albums with over 25 million copies sold. It won the Grammy Award for Album of the Year with hit singles like With or Without You, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For, and Where the Streets Have No Name. I wanna love, I wanna 
music history in 1988. Bon Jovi's manager, Doc McGee, was convicted on drug offenses arising from the 1982 seizure of 40,000 pounds of weed smuggled into North Carolina from Columbia. McGee was sentenced to a five-year suspended prison term and a $15,000 fine. This day in music history in 1990, that Fender Stratocaster that Jimi Hendrix played at Woodstock was auctioned off for a record $295,000. His two-hour set at that 1969 festival became the longest of his career, and it wasn't the first time he had performed the Star Spangled Banner by a long shot. In fact, there are nearly 50 live recordings of Hendrix playing the national anthem, 28 of them made before Woodstock. They range from about a minute to more than six minutes apiece. The Woodstock version was three minutes, 46 seconds. In this day in music history, 1995, Ginger Rogers, Academy Award-winning actress and longtime dance partner of Fred Astaire, passed away at the age of 83 from a heart attack. My heart beats so that I can hardly speak. And I seem to find the happiness I see When we're out together dancing cheek to cheek You can't always get what you want And in 2007, this day in music history, during the Rolling Stones World Tour, aides to then-President George W. Bush were told that they couldn't book a luxury five-star hotel suite because Mick Jagger had already booked it. Mick Jagger had paid out over $4,600 a night for the suite at the five-star Imperial Hotel in Vienna, Austria, in advance of the band's appearance there. Those evildoers. And this day in history, 2007, Monster Mash singer Bobby Boris Pickett passed away at the age of 69 from complications from leukemia. The BBC had banned the record from airplay in 1962 on grounds that the song was, quote, too morbid. I was working in the lab late one night when my eyes beheld an eerie sight for my monster from his slab began to rise and suddenly to my surprise he did the mash he did the monster mash in this day of music history in 2014 spotify removed an album of silence by american funk band wolfpack from its streaming site the band's fourth record called sleepify was made up of 10 tracks of silence which they encouraged fans to stream on repeat overnight. The idea was aimed at generating money so that the band could go on tour and not charge admission fees. And that's this day in music history. We should try that with our stream, Jesse. This is Lee Habib, This Day in Music History, as always brought to us by Jesse Edwards, our executive producer here at Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and this week is National Infertility Awareness Week, and it's an important week, as many of us don't realize, all the folks in our lives who are struggling with infertility, as it's something that many quietly endure and often feel isolated from what seems like a world of fertile people surrounding them. By the way, I had a couple who 
I mean, dear friends of mine who, who worked and worked and worked at trying to get pregnant for years. It, it strained the relationship. It strained the marriage. They didn't share it with anybody because who wants to share that? This is something that many more people experience than you realize. 15% of the population is struggling with infertility at any one time. Almost one out of every six people. And today's story is from Tara Cummins. At Medium.com, she bared her soul in a piece entitled The Story of the Baby I Never Had. And she graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen. So this is a really difficult story for me to share, but I think it's important. It's awkward and it's deeply personal, but I think anybody who's had the experience of infertility knows the discussion itself, it creates confusion and, and hurt feelings and mixed emotions for everybody. But that's exactly the reason I decided to share my story about the baby I never had. I'm hoping it's cathartic to others. I, I know that by sharing this, that for some people this will resonate and for some people it won't because everybody's experience is absolutely different. But this is my story and I hope those who are listening can find some peace in listening to it. So I met my husband in my 30s, and like a lot of women in their 30s, I spent my entire adult life successfully preventing pregnancy. So one night we were at dinner enjoying martinis and sushi, and he said that he would like four or five kids. (laughs) And I callously responded with, not with this uterus, you won't. I really thought I was being quite funny when I said that. And I think part of the problem was I really didn't see myself as a mom. I mean, I was a sister. I was a daughter. I wasn't even an auntie then. I really didn't understand what having children in my life would mean to me. But as I got to know my husband better, I really began to see how having children with him could be one of the things that I wanted to After we finally got married, we moved about 3,500 miles away, and we really needed a break from major life events. So we sort of hit the pause button. We specifically decided not to have or even try to have children. We just enjoyed life together. And I spent that time starting my business and nesting in the first marital house that we'd shared together. It was a really special time for us as a married couple. So when we finally decided to try, I think we sort of looked at each other and with big open eyes and realized that this was maybe one of the biggest, most adult decisions we'd ever made. Because really, I mean, only adults try and get pregnant. At first, Tara used fertility awareness, also known as natural family planning where you monitor your body's natural functioning to try to determine the days of the month you're most likely to get pregnant. Let's pick back up with Tara on her early days of trying to become pregnant. So it's really strange when you're trying to have children. You get some really weird advice. You hear over and over things like, let it happen and don't stress out. 
But very quickly followed up after that advice are, are things like, are you tracking? And are you eating right and taking prenatal vitamins? And meanwhile, at the side of your bed is this weird mixture of items, a thermometer, a calendar, a paper and pen. And you're supposed to be documenting things like temperature and a host of other metrics that really nobody wants to talk about at the dinner table. <laughs> so we tried this method for several years and uh, we were unsuccessful, but we were a little older and so we didn't think that was particularly strange. However, we decided to make the journey to an infertility specialist. I was really nervous about this. I had seen friends go through it and I'd seen what it did to to their mental states and to their bodies. And I was really still trying to wrap my head around the idea of being a mom. So when we went to the first doctor's visit, I was nervous and scared. And my doctor immediately started questioning our efforts to have a baby. He questioned personally my body bookkeeping. He even questioned whether or not we were really dedicated to having kids at all. I began to refer to this doctor as doctor's donkey's ass. He was less than supportive to say the least. However, he did tell us that our best chance for pregnancy would be IVF. While we were writing the deposit check, we were reminded it would not be easy. And by the way, IVF, which Tara mentioned, is shorthand for in vitro fertilization. The process of extracting eggs from a woman's body, retrieving a sperm sample from the man, and then manually combining an egg and a sperm in a lab dish to create an embryo. The embryo or multiple embryos are then transferred to the uterus in hopes that one successfully implants there and pregnancy is achieved. Tara continues now telling us about the difficult journey that can be IVF. I realized then that, like parenthood, the journey of having a baby, of infertility really, comes with no guarantees and no money-back offers. When I talk to people about what it's like to go through infertility treatments, I liken it to walking into an unfamiliar dark room and shutting the door. It's not like anything that you've ever experienced unless you've already experienced it. You know, IVF is really, it's a system. It's a process. And for me, I felt that my body was nothing more than the delivery mechanism of having a baby. That the body is the vessel and that's all that's really important. There isn't a lot of room for emotion or happiness or grief you just move through the process I always like to say that there's no room in this room for shenanigans it's totally serious business and there's no deviation allowed for emotions about this time I also start to feel that everything I know about getting pregnant is just really woefully naive I mean when you start reading about what it takes to get pregnant, you realize that it's a miracle that pregnancy happens for anyone at all. And for me, 
my entire world changed because acronyms began to fill my language. Doctor visits dominated my days, several days of the week, sometimes without much notice, depending on what was happening in our process. And my entire life was dedicated to this ethereal, elusive idea. I began to feel that I was no longer in control of my life, that my infertility specialist would tell me what to do and when to do it, and that I would do it. And she would do it. And when we come back, more with Tara Kuman's piece, the story of the baby I never had, and it was from medium.com, and it's a terrific piece. And this we're doing because it's National Infertility Awareness Week. And we do every kind of story here on Our American Stories. I mean, we do the This Days in Histories. We celebrate music. And sometimes we bring you tough stories like this. We've been doing it on opioid addiction, too. Very different, but not, not all laughs and not a lot of fun. Um, but so many people are going through this that we thought Tara's piece was compelling enough that we'd want you to hear it. If you have friends who are going through this, um, you don't need to, well, you need to lose the jokes and you need to tell them to cheer up and that everything's going fine. This is an ordeal for couples. Um, and as they look around and watch other people get pregnant with ease, they just wonder what's the matter with them. And all they want to do is have a, uh, have a child. So when we come back, more with Tara Kuman's piece, the story of the baby I never had. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org for all that we do. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Our American Stories. We continue with Tara Kuman's piece, The Story of the Baby I Never Had. We read it on medium.com, a terrific website. And we contacted her and asked her to record it for us. And we did that because it's National Infertility Awareness Week. And the more people know about these things, the better. They're deep struggles for one in six couples trying to have kids. One in six. So that means it could be you or someone you know, I'm sure. It's someone you know. This has happened with one very dear friend that we had, Valerie and I, up in Baltimore. And it, it, it drove the, the couple almost apart for a bit. It was so difficult. And we pick this up now with Tara trying to live with IVF treatment, which entails hormone shots to control egg production. And the hormones were making Tara crazy. She'd wake up crying and uncharacteristically fighting with her friends. Tara began reading online infertility forms and learned that the hormone dosages her doctor prescribed were on the high end of what's considered ethical. And he never told her this and about the potential side effects of which she was now feeling. Let's let's continue with Tara telling her story. The second round of shots were pretty wild too. They were administered in my rear 
and my husband hated giving them to me because they were causing me so much pain. I would literally every morning brace myself against the bathroom counter, look into the ceiling and begin a mini breathing exercise to get through the shot. And my rear started to look like a giant eggplant. And I just didn't feel like that was probably normal. So I went to the IVF infertility forums and I found out it wasn't normal. And I felt kind of let down once again, like why can't anything about this entire process be normal for me? And I couldn't really gauge if any of the symptoms I was having were the dangerous symptoms described in some of these forums because quite frankly, I felt like utter and total all of the time. So I made an appointment to go see the doctor and I was waiting in the waiting room and it's sort of surreal. I mean, it's all the soothing neutral tones and comfortable chairs. And there's this hushed sense of rush by the nurses who work there. Phones are ringing, but they're on this sort of muted, low down sound. And there's other women in the waiting room, but none of us will look at each other. It's like we don't want to admit to ourselves that we're here because our bodies won't let us have babies without the help of a doctor. The whole thing just feels so otherworldly that I have sometimes described that the this calm exterior masks the animal smell of desperation of the women, myself included, sitting in this this waiting room. So while I was waiting for the doctor, Dr. Donkey's ass, I got undressed. I threw my legs up in those stirrups. I was sitting there with one of those paper covers on my body, and there was a really hyperactive air conditioner blowing right at me. I was cold. I was uncomfortable. I was nervous. There's nothing to read. And I'm, I'm there alone, and I'm waiting. So I decided to close my eyes. And I actually woke up 40 minutes later. But I only woke up when the nurse came into the room to check on me and apologize for the wait. And I rushed to make her feel better. I said, hey, hey, it's it's no problem. Even though it was a problem. I, my husband and I had a house to run. It was a huge fucking problem. But I certainly couldn't tell the nurse or the doctor that because obviously that would make them question whether or not I was really serious about this entire process. When the doctor finally arrived into the room, he explained that there had been an emergency and that's why he was late. And so I showed him my emergency. I showed him my eggplant butt. And he and the nurse sort of looked at me quizzically and looked at me with confusion. They asked me a series of questions through which we determined that the reason that I had eggplant butt was I was using the smaller gauge needle to give myself the injections. Well, if you're not in the medical field, you might not know that a smaller gauge means that the, the size of the needle is actually larger. So I'd been giving myself hormone shots while my husband had been giving me my hormone shots every day in my butt with the needle the size of a biopsy needle. A biopsy needle. This was why every morning 
required a brace against the counter, why I had to do breathing exercises, and why my poor husband was dreading giving me these shots on the regular basis because he knew he was inflicting pain on me. It was also why I had eggplant butt. I was really angry at this. I mean, I, when they told me this, they told me this in this calm, normal state as if this was really normal that everybody makes this mistake. But I, I just wondered, how was I supposed to know? I'm, I like to think of myself as a smarter than the average bird, but I, I didn't know. I, I wondered if I should have done something else to advocate for myself or how it was that I got myself in this position. I thought back then in that moment to the training session that I had with one of the nurses in this really small airless conference room, you know, with the prerequisite female anatomy posters on the wall. And the nurse was sort of in a hurry, or at least I felt she was. I remember her explaining needles and mixtures and, you know, kind of shoving this bag of goodies at me. And she kept saying, you know, you know how it goes. And I remember several times responding with, no, I don't. This is totally new to me. Explain it to me again. And I remember feeling shame when she said to me, it's not that hard. You'll figure it out. But I didn't figure it out. And I, I didn't know. So as the doctor drew a circle on my butt and showed me the needles I should have used, I kind of wondered why it was that no one could have shown me this to start with, or maybe at one of the dozens of appointments I'd had in between. I felt really let down by the fact that it seemed like the only time I could get personal attention was when there was an emergency for me. I wondered why it wasn't a priority for everyone else there for me to have a baby. And I felt alone. I wondered why I was left to figure this out and wander through the ethers of the internet to make sense of this experience. And you can hear it in her voice, the frustration. And by the way, the way she set that picture inside that doctor's room with the women just unable to make eye contact, that's just brutal. We continue with Tara Cummins on the next step in this torturous IVF process. At this stage, there's nothing left to do but wait. And this is maybe even the worst part of the entire process because now panic sets in. I know this is our chance and I've come around to the idea of being a mom and I want twins. I want two kids and done. I know that we can't afford three, six or more rounds of IVF. And now I'm also getting scared I'm remembering my husband, the I want four or five kids guy, the guy that I desperately love. And I'm, I'm wondering if he will want to stay married to me. What if he gets five or 10 years or even 15 years down the line and he decides he wants to be a dad before he dies? How could I be angry with him for that? I, I begin to worry that I might be a source of great sadness and loss for him. And what, what will that mean for us as a married couple and me as a wife? And when we come back, the last segment, the last part of Tara Kuman's 
really difficult journey to become a mom. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. Our American Stories, the final segment of Tara Kuman's piece, The Story of the Baby I Never Had. We got this from medium.com. And by the way, in that last segment, my goodness, hearing her talk about the fact that she was maybe running out of time and running out of money and wondering, man, if I don't have children, what about my husband? He wants children. And what a perfectly good reason to leave me. Let's pick up now where Tara left off and the results of her IVF process. So finally, the waiting is over. There's an uncomfortable reality. We are unsuccessful. We are failures. Despite the unethically high hormone dosage that I'd received, I produced not 15, not even 10, but three pathetic eggs. Two did survive the procedure, but neither of them stuck. My eggs were weakling and my uterus was described as inhospitable. It didn't make me feel any better to read stories about this time of other women on lower dosages of hormones producing two and three times that many eggs, which would ensure them frozen eggs and future hormone shortened opportunities. Doctors and nurses tell me to come back and see them when we're ready. But I know we are done. And the dark room and the door we entered through have been permanently shut. Tara continues her story. After my husband assures me he won't leave me because I'm ripped him off of one of life's greatest adventures, I sleep. Deep down, I really wondered if it matters what you do with your body at all, because maybe it has its own plan and its own destiny. I realize I'm in mourning for what I didn't want, and then I did want, and now I can't have. And I feel, this is maybe one of the hardest parts of this time, I feel guilty. I wonder if I was ambivalent and so emotionally ambivalent about having kids, that's why I couldn't get pregnant. I wonder if all these fears and all this panic about being a mom prevented my body from doing its one evolutionary job. This is a really confusing stage because there are books to prepare you for pregnancy and parenthood, but there's nothing to prepare you for not becoming a parent. I'm unprepared for this next stage of not having a baby. But about this time, I realize just about everyone is unprepared for this room. 
No one knows how to act, conform, or, or comfort. Every conversation is entered into tentatively. Even the most well-meaning friends search for an appropriate response to this stage of pregnancy. We're reminded we can keep trying. We hear lots of really inspirational stories about couples who get pregnant unexpectedly, even after many failed IVF attempts. But maybe the hardest question to answer is, will you adopt? We know that many children around the world need loving families. And we're told by people who love us very much that we'd make great parents. But the adoption question is a really hard one for my husband and I to answer. Mostly because I don't want to feel like a selfish, self-absorbed genetic snob when I say what I'm really thinking. We wanted kids with each other. We wanted our kids. We wanted kids with his eyes and my laugh, kids with his dad's chin and my mom's curly hair. We wanted co-heads like we were. Friends who know what we've gone through start to feel guilty or nervous about telling us about their pregnancies. I remember when I saw one of my friend's baby showers on Facebook and I called to congratulate her on her pregnancy, pregnancy I didn't even know about. And, you know, to her credit, she confessed she just didn't know how to tell me. I I really ached during that time. I mean, I didn't ache from my loss. I ached from my distance from this experience, this experience that's so defining to being a woman. I also ached because I wanted to celebrate pregnancies with my friends. And I wanted to be part of their lives with their children. I wanted to hold their kids and cuddle and coo with them. And I wanted to enjoy those moments. I really didn't want anyone feeling sorry for me when when I did that. So I got really clear on something. I started to realize that the journey was hard on just about everyone, not just my husband and I. And this realization led Tara to another. But maybe when I started realizing that was when I realized that this experience also didn't have to define me or my marriage. I remember I read advice a father gave his infertile daughter when she discussed her infertility with him. And his advice to her, I mean, I read it so long ago, but it still resonates with me so much. He said, honey, you'll have a rich, full life. It will just be filled with different experiences. And I imagined my own dad would have said the same thing to me. And now the final portion of Tara's story, the story of the baby I never had. I start to feed this idea of what a life without children looks like. I start to think about this room. I fill it with ideas and knickknacks, plans of potential experiences. Because the truth is I wanted all of the adventure that was included in my journey even if that journey didn't include my own children. Perhaps most frightening and most liberating at the same time was this idea that 
there's no map for us for the next 18 years. It was completely up to my husband and I to set that course. Our course could be redefined, but no less relevant. I remember talking to my husband and saying that pirates set courses on unmoored ships that sail into waters unknown and that perhaps we would be pirates. Eventually, as my friends continue to have babies, and my sister too, every moment I have with a small child is just this like little spark of joy. On occasion, I admit that I felt a hollowness, but I purposefully resisted that hollowness. I did not want to be pulled back into that darkness, that deep sense of fear and uncontrol that I felt. I wanted celebration. I wanted laughter. So I started to participate in these kids' lives like I was every kid's fun auntie. I wanted to be part of the village. And every year the village got bigger. And this room of not being pregnant expanded and it got stuffed with memories. And interestingly enough, our refrigerator began to look the way I imagined it would look if we'd had kids. Little notes in little people's hands and magnets tenuously gripping rainy day art projects. All over our refrigerator are pictures with me of kids laughing and swimming and tickling. It's like I have hundreds of kids. And in a way, I do. I finally realized that there's really nothing at all empty about this journey. It is not childless. It's just different. I do have a family, my husband and I, and our two dogs, Stella and Zoe. And we have children in our lives, a lot of them. It's our village. We're not half, we're not missing, we're not without. We're complete. We're where we're supposed to be. This is our journey. It might be a room with a refrigerator shellacked with dreams, and we might be pirates mapping out our unknowns, but we do have a village. A village that grounds us but doesn't restrain us. We're not done. And we are good. And thank you, Tara, for sharing that. It took a lot of guts, a lot of courage. And what a difficult journey and what a way to see things going forward, a positive way of seeing things going forward and the gifts that are before you. And folks, if you've got your stories on this subject or any subject, uh, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, post them there. We'll get in touch with you and we'll record them and happily walk you through how to do that. We love it when we tell you stories, but we love it even more when you tell your stories back. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org for all that we do.